This is the European edition of Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. We bring you the European unicorns, startups, founders, regulators and leaders innovating the rapidly evolving fintech scene today. A truly localized podcast with both English and local language content with some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in the fintech sector globally. Join us every week as we explore what makes the European Union a phenomenal proving ground for many of the fastest growing fintech plays in the world today. Okay, let's roll. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Breaking Banks Europe. I'm Francesca Liberti, and I'm going to be your host for today's episode. And actually, today is quite an interesting one because, uh, as usual, uh, we are doing our news from the fintech front, a very popular format we, we run every month. But since it's also the end of 2023, we are going to try not only to mention, as usual, a couple of news that uh, were out in the in the fintech scene uh, in the last month, but we're going to try to reflect a little bit more on what has happened in uh, 2024, so some broader news. Uh, and also, at the end, if we have time, I'm going to ask our two guests a sort of sneak peek of uh, what 2024 is going to be cooking for us. And as I said, I'm not here alone, so let me introduce you uh, my two exceptional guests. First one is Richard Taring. Hello, Richard. Welcome to the show. Hello, and thank you so much for having me during this wonderful Christmas or holiday period. <laughs> thank you so much, Richard. Where are you based, actually? I am sitting here in Shanghai, China, where it's minus five degrees, breaking records for cold. Oh. All of China has a cold streak. And um, can't wait because I'm going away for holidays and going someplace warm. Nice, nice. <laughs> and also we have here Lex Sokolin. Hello, Lex. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. Hi, everybody. Great to be here. Where are you, where are you sitting from? Uh, I am in London right now. So we, we in, as you know, in England, we don't have temperature or weather. Uh, <laughs> always, uh, uh, it's nice and gray. So I'm feeling pretty comfortable. I, I've been in the Netherlands and in, the, in London for quite some time. So I know the feeling. <laughs> All right, guys. So I want to start this uh, um, conversation with you uh, by saying that uh, what I have seen, uh, but also I want to hear your opinion on this, uh, what I've seen, especially in, uh, I would say, the second part of the year is quite a... Um, interesting and deep focus of the regulators uh, uh, and governments in general uh, uh, on the fintech sector, and I would say more in general on the tech sector. And of course, uh, uh, I mean, coming from the fintech industry, uh, we, we all know that the fintech is quite highly regulated sector, so not a big surprise. But I think that some of the choices that were made uh, in the last uh, months were quite uh, quite interesting and quite worth it to be to me to be commented. So I really want to start from the from the first one, and it's what I called the the year crypto didn't die. So we are quite lucky to have you you two here to to comment on this. And we all know about, uh, you know, SBF uh, and uh, FTX, a big scandal. So 
we are waiting for, uh, I think, March 2024 to see how many years actually the guy is uh, is going to be charged with. Um, and and much more recently, uh, CZ and uh, and Binance agreed on a quite historical uh, settlement with the U.S. government uh, uh, for for some criminal charges uh, on uh, AML laws on the um, going against the AML laws. And the very last one I, I've just read is about Kraken uh, under the lens again of uh, of SEC. So mainly the U.S. government going after some some big crypto platforms. And the funny thing is that uh, of course a lot of people were saying, especially I have to say when the when the FTX scandal was uh, was out, uh, a lot of people were saying. Uh, uh, crypto is uh, it's uh, it's dead. Uh, actually, in Italian, I don't know how to say in English, but in Italian we say, you know, those kind of professors. They were always like, uh, I've told you, crypto was a mess. So you shouldn't have done this and, and things like that, you know. But the funny thing, the even more funny thing, is that uh, crypto actually is still there and the market actually surged. So I haven't checked today, honestly, but yesterday was like, again, above 40. So what's going on, guys? I think that's a, like, that's a, that's a point. That, that was pointing at you, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, there are some very obvious things to say, which is, uh, let's say you're the kind of person that at the end of 2001, you look at the collapse of the internet uh, boom and you say, I told you the internet was a scam because these companies collapsed because silly things like pets.com happened because Goldman Sachs was involved in lots of um, IPOs and self-dealing because these finance people took advantage of all this technology. There will never be internet again. I was right. Or let's say it's 2008 and you're the kind of person that says, look, um, because we used derivatives and we created mortgage-backed securities, and all of that stuff blew up. And because the housing market collapsed, um, and all these finance people came in and behaved irresponsibly, people will never have houses again. And if you said that, you're a complete idiot. You know, it's on its face, uh, wrong. And so in the same way, when you look at uh, the crypto markets, you know, and I use a strong word very much on purpose here, um, when you look at the crypto markets and you say, there's this technology that's been invented for the scarcity of digital assets. It's global. It's it's deployed in every country in the world. It has hundreds of millions of users. Uh, it holds a, a trillion in value. It's been battle tested and you know hasn't gone down. Um, and it's the the main global sort of technological collaboration between every country on an open source basis. Um, and you have a bunch of finance people. Uh, come in and acting irresponsibly, using derivatives and market collapsed, and therefore there never will be crypto again. You know, and it's the same kind of categorical error that that people are mistaking um, speculative activity. They're mistaking um, human nature, um, the the problems of custodial relationships. Uh, you know, reminder that FTX, uh, Binance. And the other firms you mentioned, uh, none of them are on-chain, on-chain decentralized finance. All of them are structured in exactly the same way that a broker-dealer or an asset manager would be structured, just uh, not not um, not following the regulations for those custodial firms. Um, 
you know, people are, are missing or not looking at the underlying substance of the sector, which is really unfortunate for the people who are excited about the substance of the sector. But the the good news is that once you let time run and entrepreneurship continues, the technology continues to get better, assets continue to get pulled in, treasuries get pulled in on chain, private credits on chain, um, you know, regulation moves along and adopts to new things. Uh, Gary Gensler starts losing uh, court cases left and right. Uh, you end up having the resurgence of technology because the technology is, um, uh, you know, it's, it's strictly better than than prior generations, and so that's why that's why I think here we are. Yeah, you made a, quite an interesting parallelism because uh, you know um, we have also seen the biggest Ponzi scheme of uh, history, and Wall Street is still there, so didn't mean anything, right? Um, Richard, what's your opinion on this? It's not dead. That's a very low bar. But listen up. It's a it's a zombie right now. OK, now, the reason I call it a zombie, which is half living, half dead, is that crypto. Now, I'm speaking specifically not about the technology, but about cryptocurrencies are going to be working stiff zombies, just like every one of us that now pay taxes, that now have KYC behind them. And the concept that what is dead is that this money is mine. It doesn't belong to the state. I'm not going to pay taxes on it. That's over. That is absolutely dead. And for those who held that belief, just remember that our friends at Binance, as part of their settlement with the SEC, are what are they asked to do? They're asked to give up all of the data, multiple years of transaction data. So if you weren't paying your taxes, you're going to pay them now. All right. And it's the same thing with Kraken. Kraken gave up for the data for 42,000 users. So crypto isn't dead, but it has been zombified in as much as we talk about cryptocurrency and paying taxes, KYC, the things that make money transfer unpleasant. I agree with you. Unpleasant, but normal in the bank context are now being pushed on to cryptocurrencies and their use. Now, what has been very sad is that people equate cryptocurrency with blockchain technology and all of the wonderful technological advances that we all owe a debt to cryptocurrency people for pushing forward. And I, I work in the central bank digital currency space, and I admit these people brought forth wonderful technology. But remember, the technology is one side, and the taxes, the KYC, and you know the reality that money is not, at least for now, and I'm sorry to say this, people, go ahead, dial in and complain. But money is not stateless yet. And that's, you know, you, that's a, a bigger point of debate. So not dead, but zombified for now. All right. Big statements here, right? Um, you know, it's uh, uh, what you were saying about the blockchain technology. It's also actually reflecting. It's a pity, but it's reflecting also in, in the investments that are actually quite uh, lower than before. And uh, maybe also because uh, I don't know, I don't have the data, 
but also because of you know all these uh, um, uh, trembling moments uh, all about uh, uh, cryptocurrencies. So it's going to be interesting to see how next year is going to be uh, both for the blockchain technology investments around that uh, and also what what the crypto world is going to is going to reserve us. And you, Richard, were mentioning, of course, your involvement with the with the CBDC world. Which is one of the other uh, things I want to discuss with you, because uh, uh, of course many people are also saying that you know um, the moment uh, when uh, the governments uh, are gonna roll out uh, uh, CBDCs uh, and this is gonna be in place, uh, cryptocurrencies uh, will not have their mean anymore. Let's say are gonna be replaced by them. So recently, the European Central Bank uh, um, unveiled its plan like a couple of months ago to introduce uh, a retail uh, central bank digital currency, so the CBDC, aligning actually its strategy with the, with the one of the Chinese government that, uh, that, that had in place the digital one, which was, and uh, Richard, you are, I think, one of the... The, the biggest expert in the, in this field. So um, that one was a, a great success, at least on paper. So I'm I'm curious to to hear uh, what you think about this. And more in general, uh, um, I want to ask you guys, uh, what do you think it's gonna be the next steps uh, to have uh, a proper CBDC in place, at least in Europe, uh, uh, for what it counts for for us. Richard. Sure. Um, let me let me dive in there and let's start with the issue of cryptocurrency. And you know, Lex, this will make you happy. Um, there is no way in hell that CBDC is going to disrupt the crypto market. They are very separate entities. One is obviously fiat currency. You use it to buy your coffee at your local coffee shops. And in some distant future, machines will use it to pay for things, which is much more relevant for uh, CBDC. But the concept that CBDC will kill crypto or crypto will kill CBDC or stable coins will kill this. I look forward to a future where we all have digital wallets and those wallets can allow us to pay with CBDC, stable coins, cryptocurrency. Got anything else in there? Go ahead, put it in. As long as you're paying taxes on it, as long as it's legal, you should be able to pay however you want to. And that's, in a, in, a, in a minor way, that's what we do with credit cards now. A lot of us have cards for we're airline mile points. I have another one that gives me cash back. When I buy Apple computers, I make sure I use Apple Pay because I get 2.0% back at the Apple store. We have these multiple choices for payment so now. So what you mean, and Richard, is like a, um, a fully legal cashless society doesn't matter. No, uh, uh, so these are, as far as cashless goes, interestingly enough, I'm a strong proponent of keeping cash. I do not believe the government should eradicate cash. It should be kept. I've been vocal about that for a long time. But in as much as you make a cashless payment, you should be able to make it using any of the technologies that are available. They should all exist and they should all fight it out and 
for market share based on their cost, um, their convenience, their points, or you know, mileage points, whatever it is that you want, you should be able to get out of it. Now, um, we're going to get a digital euro, and I'm an EU citizen, and I'm really, really excited about it. I'm obviously a proponent of central bank digital currency. I live in China. I have used, I'm one of a few group of, 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 of foreign citizens who have actually used a, a central bank digital currency to buy you know, a couple of bottles of water in the subway station. Um, but um, it's a good future to look forward to. And um, the digital euro is interesting. It has about 99.9% .9 of the same genetic DNA as China's digital yuan. And that's not intended to scare people because the digital yuan is actually very prudently built and actually built with high standards of privacy. Um, of course, one can also say that the difference between a human and a gorilla is like 0.001 on the DNA scale. So those differences between China and, um, and the digital euro are probably significant. But um, I think that's a wonderful future to look forward to. Um, because it will give us all new options in digital payment. And I just have to say this, people, and then I'm going to close, I promise. But we really have to understand the cost of payments. And right now, in the United States, they pay 2.3% of the United States' entire GDP for payment costs to bank and cards. And in the EU, it's 1.4% of the entire GDP of the European Union. So, you know, so when people say central bank digital currency, it's a solution looking for a problem. I like to say, well, that 1.4% of EU GDP or 2.3% of US GDP certainly classify as problems worth solving in my book. And now I'll pass it over to Lex. Lex, what are you gonna say? Um, I was, was, you know, this, I don't take issue with any of it. I think that's all great. Um, uh, there's kind of um, there's some minor distinctions to make, which is, you know, um, when I go buy a sandwich, I don't need to pay for that sandwich with Apple stock. Uh, so I don't think we need to pay with everything uh, out there. But I, I think we need to pay with things that claim to be some sort of monetary instrument. Um, and like today, literally just today, I'll give a shout out to uh, a company called Holy Held. Um, that we looked at recently um, at Generative Ventures. And Holy Held um, works with uh, different um, DAOs, uh, large treasuries of DAOs uh, in Web3. You know, So um, I don't know in particular, but like MakerDAO has a $3 billion balance sheet, has lots of, has lots of employees essentially that that do tasks on behalf of, of that company. You know, think of another company that's got a $3 billion balance sheet that gives you the scale. Those people receive um, compensation in um, the maker token or maybe USDC. And then the question is, how do they go spend it? Well, Holy Held has thousands of customers who are these crypto native insiders that have a wallet with a plethora of tokens that are their compensation um, and, um, and they can go and 
with a card from Holy Hill, spend it at any location in Europe. You know, so they've connected the uh, the fintech side. Um, you know, whether it's open banking or whether it's connecting into a card rail, and then on the other side, they've connected into various um, uh, basically on-chain smart contract trading engines. You know, so today it's already from a technological standpoint, it's a, it's a solved problem to have um, uh, sort of a an orthodox method of payment like a card connected to um, modern financial instruments like digital assets. Um, or, you know, I think I can imagine a world also where we use crypto wallets. And this is kind of a broad category, right? They have, you've got neobanks that claim to be digital wallets. You have Apple and Android that claim to have their own operating system digital wallet with their own banking stuff. Then you have banking apps, whether it's HBC, JP Morgan, or whatever, Barclays that claim to be digital wallets. And then you have crypto uh, wallets, which claim to be digital wallets. So hopefully over time that stuff um, smushes together. Um, so I do think that it is not hard um, to just deploy the, the, the stuff that you have as a payment instrument. In regards to CBDCs, um, personally, and this is probably slightly heretical for the Web3 space that I'm in, but you know, I think they're a big net positive uh, because end of the day, um, they will educate people on how on the on the ownership architecture of a digital asset because to own um a digital asset on a blockchain is very different from owning uh some number on some ledger at some bank where in fact you're interacting with an abstraction uh but on a on a blockchain you actually own the the asset so to the extent the cbdc is is built on a real blockchain as opposed to a database you know, it'll educate people about security, about self-custody, and I think that's net positive. Um, the last point I'll make is that money's for spending. Um, I mean, it, it is also for savings, and, and we do have money market funds. But in, in the sense of monetary instruments, money is for, for spending, and so it needs to connect into venues of commerce where there are things to buy, right, where there are goods and services. And I'll agree with Richard that... Um, CBDCs point at a different set of commerce than what stablecoins point at. Um, and I think that's really going to be the, the key distinction. Like, where can you spend the asset? Where, you know, stablecoins are largely for, for purchasing things within um, the digital asset marketplace within Web3. And CBDCs are likely to be uh, in some way forced into traditional payments and used in uh, in, in the existing commerce that we have. So it's, it's an answer with a lot of detail and I think it's pretty complex, but net, I think it's a, it's a big positive. And uh, double clicking on what you were saying about uh, um, people using it uh, um, and uh, understand how to use it. Uh, I was thinking that uh, actually it's, I mean, as everything, uh, a big matter of traction, you know. So uh, I'm actually curious to understand from Richard what was the reaction of uh, of Chinese population to the CBDC, to the um, digital one, let's say. Um, and also from you, Alex, uh, how much do you think we still need to convey the message to people that uh, this is something that they can use? I mean, uh, at the end of the day, some people are kind of worried that that we have the instrument in place, but nobody's going to use it. So um, I'm going to keep it real short. 
Um, in practice, China already has magnificent digital payment that is essentially free through both WeChat and Alipay. So digital paying with a digital wallet, having a digital ecosystem, all that is already long, eight years, we're eight years into it, almost a decade beyond the West in this, in that account. So um, when the app first launched on the App Store, the Digital Yuan app, um, something like 30% of the country downloaded it within 48 hours. So people were excited about it. The reality is, even if you downloaded the app, it didn't mean you could use it because it's still in trial and only available in certain regions. So I think that um, people are excited about it at some at some level. I think on another level, nobody cares because we can still pay for stuff and, and that's fine. But you have to think about the digital yuan as a game changer because it is not just for buying coffee. Now, here's where it gets interesting. What you see in China is you see the first projects where now the digital yuan just today was used to buy 14 million US dollar equivalent in gold on the on the exchanges here, but the payment was actually sent cross-border in digital yuan to Hong Kong. That's today. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we saw the first $90 million shipment of oil purchased in digital yuan. So, you know, you really have to think about CBDC, and this is what I tell everybody. We have a tremendous lack of imagination for how we think about using central bank digital currency. Because all we think about is buying coffee. Nobody needs a CBDC to buy coffee. What you do need is a factory that's manufacturing widgets that counts them automatically through an IoT system and bills or pays it pays for the, the, the raw material that's consumed and asks you to pay the bill before they come off the production line. It's a it's a future where machines and smart contracts are going to do the major part of the payment asking and paying. And it's a, it's a whole different world that we're looking at. So um, big news and a lot going on. And I ask people to stretch your imagination. It's not about coffee. Alex, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think the Chinese experience is unique in many ways, given the, the approach to the approach to money, uh, some of the cultural norms around things like hand financial, as well as the the role of the government in, in society. Um, I think in the West, it's um, the adoption is going to be quite different, and you see that in the like in the U.S., it's so hard to get uh, payment methods to get adopted. I mean, Europe is, you know, if you think Europe is slow, Europe is like five years ahead of the U.S. in uh, in the adoption of faster payments and all these things. So I'm not surprised that. Um, the Europeans also faster to approach a CBDC project as well. You know, I again, for me, um, I'm interested in a Web3 native economy. Um, today, that's largely dollar denominated. I think it's uh, it's for the U.S. to lose. There's about $100 billion worth of um, USD uh, on chain right now, give or take, um, which is pretty tremendous for a trillion dollar asset class. Um, you know, the, the European stable coins today are, if you add them all up, are about 100 million, maybe less. So there's not a ton of demand 
for either the euro or the yuan on in the Web3 economy. There's a lot of demand for the dollar, you know, and the demand for that dollar is also in places like Venezuela and Argentina in remittance corridors. I see a lot of companies being building like dollar remittance between Mexico and US or between Singapore and the Philippines. Um, so I think there's a lot of nuance for how and why people are are using these instruments. I think in all cases, CBDCs are a net plus uh, in the wholesale case or in the large enterprise institutional cases. The more automation we have and the more sort of connectivity between digital money and digital productivity, digital commerce, the, the better. So, you know, I'm pretty aligned with Richard in terms of um, seeing a machine economy emerge, um, although I think we probably have um, a chunky amount of work between the sort of proof of concepts uh, and experiments that we're seeing now and um, sort of giant production uh, systems. All right. Thanks a lot. So, guys, we really have five minutes left. So what I'm, uh, I'm going to ask you as a very last question is, uh, I understand it's quite uh, um Difficult to say, but uh, let's say if you have to mention uh, only one technology uh, or trend, uh, as you prefer, that is going to be um, highly, let's say, uh, impactful in 2024, what it's going to be. Maybe even in a, in a, in a, in a negative way, yeah? not um, impactful, uh, always in a positive way. What is going to be? What are we going to talk about uh, in 2024? I'll go. Just because we just very simple. They're, we're going to, well, self serving. I'm going to leave this one out, but I'll say it central bank digital currency. Okay. We know that it's already a big thing. So let's just say that that's going to continue. But the thing, and Lex, you're going to love this because I think the hottest thing that we're going to see in 2024, other than Gen AI, please, I don't want to hear that, um, is tokenization and institutional DeFi. These are mainstream technologies now, and they are going to be ever greater, you're going to see ever greater ad adoption uh, among mainline institutions. It's going to be mainstreamed and normalized. Um, banks are looking at tokenizing deposits now. Um, we've got a brave new world of tokenization, and I'll say this, a brave new world of institutional that's the key word, DeFi, which will allow for smart contracts and a complete change in how we visualize how the monetary system and how, uh, how we perceive what's money, what's value, what are assets. They're all going to be on chain, and that's real, and that's coming. And I'm going to pass it over to Lex, who probably probably smiling and liking that one. Lex, you also, I mean, with Genetic Ventures, uh, <laughs> where, where, are you, where are you going to focus on so we yeah, can, so can copy you? The, 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 I agree with Richard. I mean, DeFi is just finance. Institutional DeFi, tokenization, fintech, crypto, blockchain, um, digital investing, robo-advice, it's just finance. There's, there's no, all these distinctions are... Um, are melting away because they're not useful. So as, as it becomes institutional, DeFi is just the financial infrastructure of the world. Uh, and it starts looking more like the internet, which for many people it already does. And we are, you know, 
we're all so confused why it's taking the rest of the world uh, such a long time. But putting that aside, I, I will go exactly at the place where um, Richard doesn't want to, which is um, generative AI. And for me, the, the, the place where we're focusing on generative ventures is around the machine economy, and in particular at the economic output that's coming from software. Uh, software agents and, and machine intelligence, not on its own in sort of a science fiction way, but as as a tool, a productivity tool that people use. You know, so we know that um, AI is increasing labor productivity. We know it's going to make GDP go up, um, and we also know that the artifacts that are being created are digital objects. You know, their content, their images, their videos. They are uh, software code. Uh, so all the things that matter in the internet world and that we that we inhabit. And so that's the, the labor um, of, uh, of the digital economy. We've got the economic architecture, which is Web3 and blockchains. And so for me, the interesting question is, the more we have machine labor come in and agents on behalf of people building stuff that they want and, and transacting on their behalf, what is the financial layer for, uh, for the machine economy? You know, how, how do software agents uh, own things, sell things, buy things, pay for things. Um, and we're seeing a lot of companies doing interesting stuff in that space. And so that's our focus. Thank you so much, Lex. Thank you, Richard. And um, we have to wrap up this this episode. It was quite short, but but intense. A lot of things uh, I I would like to keep you asking, but... The time is against us, so thanks a lot, uh, um, both of you, for having joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And by the way, just one quick thing: nobody, Lex, didn't pay me to say that tokenization <laughs> and institutional DeFi. His exact line of work: we're going to be super hot in 2024. However, now that I thought of that, Lex, you owe me a beer next time I'm in London. I I thought my robots already paid your robots. I thought that there's a. Oh uh, no! I'm, I'm sorry. My robots only take digital yuan, and I'm sorry. Those oh, no. connections between between London and, and Beijing have not yet been formalized. <laughs> thanks everybody for uh, for tuning in today. Thank you, and uh, thanks a lot, everybody. Keep uh, keep following Breaking Banks Europe for uh, for other insights, and uh, happy holidays to everybody. Ciao. Thanks for listening to Breaking Banks Europe, a Provoke Media podcast in cooperation with FinTech Stage. Don't forget to tweet us out, shout out, or post to the team at Breaking Banks EU on Twitter. If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on our cast, let us know. See you next week on Breaking Banks Europe.